0: Hey, y'all. It's so good to have you tuning in to another episode of What's the Lesson. We're your hosts, Mary and Jill. Go ahead, grab your favorite snack, maybe some popcorn, because today is super special. We're absolutely
1: thrilled to introduce our phenomenal guest, the one and only Miss Katie McPherson. For those of you who don't know Katie, she is a powerhouse
0: in the childhood education and digital wellness space. With a whopping 25 years of experience under her belt in the education world, from teaching to counseling and even administration, Katie's journey is all about advocating for students and families. She's not shy to tackle those tough talks and challenges head on, always seeking to truly listen and to help parents implement. It's
1: her dedication to social and emotional wellness that really resonate with us. From her active involvement in youth mental health movements to her invaluable lessons on digital citizenship, Katie's influence is far-reaching.
0: Katie is the director of professional development at Bark for Schools, which is an AI-powered app safeguarding over 5 million kiddos on their devices. In addition, she's been at the forefront of suicide prevention campaigns and has had a major say in youth-focused committees right here in Arizona. Today, we'll
1: chat about the pressing need for digital education in homes, tackle some common myths around digital literacy, decipher between bullying versus healthy conflict, and chat about different parenting styles. To some of our local listeners, you'll probably know her and her stellar reputation. And for the rest of you, you're in for a treat. Let's get into it. Welcome to What's the Lesson, the podcast that takes you on a deep dive into the world of character development.
0: We're Jill and Mary, the dynamic duo behind Girls Mentorship. We foster
1: self-confidence, self-esteem, and self-awareness for tween and teen girls, along with their invaluable network of supporters through events, resources, and mentorship.
0: Picture us as your coaches walking alongside you through the world of social emotional learning and think of this podcast as your own personal roadmap.
1: We'll support you in discovering obstacles that might be holding you back, and gain clarity on why this work is a game changer, not only for your growth, but for the next generation of leaders as well.
0: Alongside our fantastic guests, we're here to share knowledge about how you can change old patterns of behavior and make sense of those WTF moments, shifting them into lessons that can drastically improve your life instead. Whether
1: you're an entrepreneur, a superhero stay-at-home mom, or someone fueled by boundless curiosity, our mission is crystal clear to supercharge your emotional intelligence and sprinkle the magic of SEL into every corner of your life.
0: I mean, speaking of the work we're doing, you've been doing this work a lot longer than us. Um, from reading your website, you've got what, 25 years of experience. You've been in and around schools, educating as a teacher, as a guidance counselor, as an administrator. You're a mom. I mean, you have just a wealth of experience, knowledge, applied knowledge. Where do you even begin with with your career, and and where you've where you've ended up? So, I want to start with with where we are right now. Right now, you are would I call it an independent. Consultant, and then you work with Bark, and you work with Not My Kid, and you go into schools and you teach digital wellness. Realistically, is am I am I in and around describing what you the do? Job well? description. <laughs>
2: yeah, I yeah, it's hard sometimes for me to even describe what I do because I do so many different things. But I just lob it into digital wellness consultant, youth mental health advocate. That usually covers it.
0: You literally are like a local legend around this Phoenix Scottsdale area. Everyone that we Truly. come in contact with has asked us if we've met you. And we did have a brief introduction um at what it was at my son's yeah. school. The Sand Sharks. Desert Shadows. And we um
1: which I love because we got to hear your amazing presentation. But then we also got to see you be a mom and be like, Hi, um, my kid needed a break from school and what was happening in her own situation. So she came with me to drive in the car. I had to do this presentation, but I have her in the I car. Gotta go. I got to go. And we were like, this is so awesome. Like she's really practicing what she preaches. Um, so even in that small interaction, we got to see your integrity and and the work that you do really live out into your motherhood. So um, can't wait to really connect with you more on this podcast. Yeah, same.
0: So obviously, digital wellness hasn't always necessarily needed to be a focal point. With social media and Instagram, it really came on hot. I'd say, what, 2012, so 11-ish years ago. What led you to being drawn to that as a niche more so than what you were focusing on before? Um, And if you want to talk about what your focus was before, I would love to hear that as well in terms of just your path and your fervor for the work in multiple different facets?
2: So like from 2000, so I became a school administrator in 2001. I was a dean of students in the Kyrene School District. And then we moved to North Scottsdale and um, I was an assistant principal in the Scottsdale Unified School District. And so 2006, like all of my students started to come to school with iPhone 4s and then fives, and six, and seven, eight, and mm-hmm. it hasn't stopped, right? Um, so between like 2006 and 11, it was like my space and Musical.ly, but I was dabbling like more into girls then. Like girls were coming into my office with like all the drama, all the things girls, and I have five sisters, no brothers, no sons, and at the time, I was on my way to having four daughters. <laughs> so Lots I was really doing, yeah I was doing a ton of work with just girls I was doing like a little group after school called girl power I was doing weekend um, events called she sharing healthy experiences and it was like mother-daughter stuff or just you know the girls um, so I was really focusing on that and then all of a sudden I started to see around 2008 9 10 boys started coming into my office and I was like oh my gosh like I must, you know, change my focus and, and do both. And so I started doing um, events for both genders at the time and really seeing the shift of what social media was doing. So by 2011, 12, 13, Instagram, Musical.ly, which wasn't TikTok yet, and Snapchat had, like, taken over the entire student population that I served. And all I was doing all day long was literally fighting crime like and when i say crime i mean real crime like kids um trading nude photos i was having them arrested for juvenile felony at the time um, for distributing child pornography i had a student that met up with a predator at the scottsdale mall and she came to me and told me um, so he was arrested <laughs> Um, I had kids trading, you know, drugs and alcohol on campus using Snapchat. So that was coming to my office. So, like, all this stuff that was sort of happening outside of school was coming to school. And literally, like, from 8 a.m. to 2.33 p.m., I was, like, fighting crime. So by 2016, I was like, I can't do this anymore. These poor kids. Like, I had students being sexually assaulted. Like, it, it was so bad. So I just left and I was like, I'm going to go on the road and do these like little speaking engagements. And then I would say the other thing that happened was in 2016 as well, we had a student who used social media to cry for help. And he unfortunately died by suicide on campus at one of our local high schools. But he used social media to like call for help. And he was tweeting out like, I want my life back, you know, I screwed up. My girlfriend broke up with me. It was like these little tweets, but they all added up to this huge lane of distress. So Channel 3 actually reached out to me and said, we know you've been sort of dabbling in this space. Like, what are we missing? I'm like, nothing, like it's all right here. Um, language has a lot of meaning and these kids are using social media to talk about a whole bunch of things, but specifically their distress too. So that, you know, between 2006 and 16, social media had taken over like all of my work. And then 2016 till now, I really started um, dabbling in the more into youth mental health, suicide prevention, and just sort of digital wellness overall. So it's been a journey, it's been a real journey. But for 19 years, I was on a high school or middle school campus in some capacity. So I've really seen
1: childhood
2: drastically change.
1: I can't imagine being in your shoes um, and experiencing all of that, Mm -hmm. Um, especially parents not knowing really these apps themselves. And um, I'm sure you probably had to make a lot of phone calls to parents to get the kids the help that they needed. Um, And for you to have just a ping, like, you know what, we need more parent education because we at school cannot be the only people to help these kids. So how do we then create language uh, for the parents to support the conversation at home so that they, we say knowledge is power, so that they can continue to support their child at home. So my question to you is, what what was missing for the parents? Was it a lack or distraction of um, maybe, oh, it was just an app or it's just an app, I don't need to get involved? Or what did you hear back then um, that still might ring true to you educating parents in this digital wellness space?
2: I think there's a misconception that good kids can be trusted anywhere. Um, Good kids make poor decisions at school, online, in person, in chats, all the things, right? So there's this, like, I think it comes from denial a little bit. Like, well, my kid's good. That could never happen to him. Um, But all sorts of things happen to great kids, even when they're doing their best to stay safe online. So I think it was part of that. It was also, like, cool and trendy to have, like, the latest and greatest, and that still holds true. I will also say economically during like 2006 to 2008 in Arizona specifically, we had this huge real estate boom and people were very distracted by all of a sudden they had like $400,000 worth of equity in their house and they started buying other properties and boats and they were very distracted by their new wealth and they were not paying attention as much to their students. And like handing over this iPhone for their birthday seemed like everyone else is doing it, so I'm gonna do it. So there, there is still to this day is barely any education around what they're handing over. We have you know companies like Bark, we have SmartSocial.com, Protect Young Eyes, Healthy Screen Habits, but I literally can only name five websites that I can send parents to, to learn more. And that means that they're setting aside time to do that. And even then, like, it's sort of this hodgepodge reactive approach instead of like Apple or Samsung (laughs) having like, bundled with your brand new phone for your 12 year old is this like mini micro course. And in order to get $10 off your bill a month, you and your child take this parent-student course and learn at least some of the bare essentials of how to protect your child online. And so that still does not exist.
0: God, okay. that's amazing.
1: Do you, well, and really quickly, because I know you're going to jump in. It's kind of like when you go to the hospital and you have to watch the video of how to not shake your baby. And you're like, of course, I know that. But- that's it, it rings true to so many scenarios in your life. When you go and you get your driver's license, you have to take a test. So I love, I love this kind of bigger thinking vision of these big cell phone conglomerates to really partner with
0: families, families, families. the people that they're
1: impacting well, and the,
0: the most. Totally. Well, and I mean, Phyllis last week on our podcast with her said, you can't talk your kid out of wanting to be popular, which I loved because you're absolutely right. My parents got a divorce when I was nine, and I certainly learned, understood, used the relationship um, that was non-existent between the two of them to get what I wanted. And my dad bought me all the technology. It was like his way of showing love, right? And I think that's a lot of parents, whether... I I know the love is there. I know we we deeply love our kids, but in order to show that or prove it or want to be the cool mom, the cool dad, it is what you said. We're handing over technology without even knowing how powerful it is. And I was such a testament to that. I had every new phone. So I'm really glad that my phones didn't have like super capabilities when I was in high school. I could play Snake on my Nokia and I had like an <laughs> MP3 on the outside of one of my flip phones. And then it went to, you know, the the sidekick that could kick out fun and or the razor that looked cool. But we weren't posting everything about who we were on on the world wide web for everyone to see, which is such a difference now, because I feel like in our working with parents, they don't understand that they're allowing 4 million of their kids' closest friends to be in their living r- room with them every single night, which is these unrealistic expectations. We're comparing, we're we're talking to people that we don't know who they are. We've worked with several one-on-one clients who have been in the conundrum that you just described with um, dealing drugs on Snapchat. And so many parents look at us and say, Oh, we're too old for that. We're, we we I, I can't get on Snapchat. What are you talking about? It's like you can't, you absolutely need to. Like can't means won't. So you're saying you won't get on Snapchat in order to learn the platform in order to keep your child safe. Mm-hmm. So it feels like to us there's just such a big miss between what parents understand in terms of the capabilities of the device they're giving their child and understanding that it's not the babysitter and you can't can't use it to pacify. You actually have to be an active participant in the relationship with your child and the smartphone. I feel like all of us got just swept
2: up by the industry and they're banking on us being stressed and tired. And most parents are stressed and tired. And it's just easier to let your nine-year-old use their iPad instead of engaging with them. And so we just do. And the industry is banking on that continuing. And we've done a pretty good job lining that up.
1: Oh, man. I totally agree. I find myself falling to that as well, where I'm like, I just need to do a little bit. Here's this. But I'm aware and i know when to pull back and i know when that i i can i can give but there's not a lot of awareness because we are in such a hustle culture um where we are just nine to it's it's nine to grind it is just constant and then taking the kids and trying to figure out dinner yada yada so i I, I think it's just a really good call out for the parents tuning into this around, like, where is your usage with your child? And do you need to adjust that, um is it hindering your relationship? Are you seeing anything that could be a little, you know, uh,
0: improved different? upon? Yeah. Can you do something different? Can you do something different? And with that thought, I'm sure you hear it all the time. You're in conversations with parents all the time around digital wellness. To the parents who are saying to you, I don't have time. I I can see that, obviously. Time, money, energy, those are the three biggest things. What do you say to them? What are your workarounds in terms of it's not, it's not an option. If you want to keep your kids safe and you want them to grow into a well-rounded, non-addicted, um, not conflicted by porn or all the other things that they will, it's not an if it's a will stumble upon. What are your conversations with parents around the, I can'ts"?
2: I really, I think it's because I'm old now. Like I just have no tolerance for like, I can't like, like your number one job as a parent is to protect your child from a lot of things, you know, and sometimes from themselves, especially in the teen years. And so, you know, I think my tagline is, you can't afford not to. And let me let me tell you a few stories why. Um, and that if you don't have time to dedicate to this, then you really have to get clarity around what is in your day. And what are these other things that are technological, like your router, like an app, like Bark, that can do the work for you? So one of the reasons I love Bark, and I never really imagined working for them, I always referred people to them, Um, I think I was the number one, like, ambassador. They used to have like these yeah, parent you were. ambassadors, you know? <laughs> um, so you know during COVID I pivoted over there. But one of the reasons I love Bark so much is you don't have to do random phone checks. You don't have to rifle through your kid's phone because Bark is running in the background and alerting you to only the things that you want to know about that are safety issues. So it's literally doing the work for you. So like if I'm in front of a group of parents, like there's no excuse because we have all of these apps like Bark that do the work for you. We have all of these routers that also lock down your house, uh, filter out explicit content. Like we really have a lot of cool tools that do a lot of the work for you. Now, the education piece is where you really need to dig in. And, you know, that could be one or two hours. That could be six hours. It really depends on how old your kids are, what you're giving them access to. But you know, my standard, I have two standard lines. We've given the Ferrari with no driver's ed and they're crashing and burning, literally crashing and burning and have been for 20 years. And you know, when people ask me, when should I give my child a phone? As you mentioned, I say, when you're ready for them to see porn, because you can do all the things, you can lock it down, you can do all the things. Even if you do all the things, some joker, some classmate, some friend is going to expose them to things you don't want them to see. So we have to be having these ongoing conversations around it.
0: Well, and that's a part of your philosophy, right? Have difficult conversations, actively listen, wash, rinse, and repeat. Put those steps in play. I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's simple and I just, we're so clouded with what Jill described in terms of responsibility and hustling and making sure, and we forget that our most important asset, what we should be hustling the hardest for is the one suffering the most. And we're not just sitting here saying that, the the data proves it. I mean, the statistics around mental health, anxiety, depression, you said something around well, I have a good kid. There's no way that they would do that. Not my kid. Why do you think Not My Kid exists? And if you're new around here and don't know what that means, it's a local nonprofit organization that strictly deals with um, violence, drug use, and alcohol use in in many demographics. But they're in the heart of Paradise Valley for a reason because the founder's child um, was one of those not-my-kid situations. So it, it's as as much hope and stock as we place into our kids, their brains aren't fully developed. And as adults, we get deterred and we get tricked and we get sidetracked. So what on earth would make us think that our kids have fail-safes in place when we haven't rightfully taught them those things? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I
1: want to quickly ask you a question because I love this conversation about parents. And one of the biggest sticky points that we get asked a lot when we talk about our programs is, well, how am I going to talk to my kid about this? Like, I don't think she's going to buy into it. What's the conversation that I need to have? And I'm curious if you also hear some of these um, kind of these roadblocks around parents being like, okay, I love what you're saying, Katie. Yeah, this is really great, but uh, my kid's not going to, he's not going to buy it. So how do you help parents overcome the excuses, the limiting
2: beliefs? Mm -hmm. Yes. I really think, um, so Michelle Eichard has this great book called 14 Conversations to Have Before 14. So if you haven't interviewed her, she should be your next person.
0: Michelle, Um, we're coming for you.
2: That book um, is excellent. There's another woman named Dr. Robin Silverman who has a podcast called How to Talk to Kids About Anything. And every week it's like, how to talk about pornography, how to talk about sex, how to talk about drugs and alcohol. Um, So I always encourage people when they push back like on that to dig into resources like that. But I also call them out on, it sounds like you have some fear around this particular topic you know, what, what's in that for you and sort of try to dig out of them. You know, they don't want their kid to grow up. They don't want, you know, they, the old thing about suicide. If we talk about suicide, it's going to spread and then my kid's going to do it. Um, Most children have been exposed to a classmate or the topic of suicide, unfortunately, through their family or school or kids talking about it, or especially online messaging and groups, right? So, um, You know, we haven't planted the seed to anything our kids haven't already been exposed to. So we need to get clear. We need to get brave. And I think that's really my essential message is if you are handing this over and saying to your nine-year-old, I trust you with four billion strangers, then you might as well open the front door to your house and leave it open all night long. Because that's really, truly what we've been doing. And we're like, oh, why are these kids suffering so much? (laughs) It's like, well, they've been exposed to some serious yuck. And just, you know, I was reading a study this morning, just the exposure of like selfies and Zoom and things like this. Like we are online all the time and there's some brain research around looking at yourself too much and what it does to your self-image. And especially for a kid between 8 and 17 you know those developmental years are crucial. So I just, you know, I I think because I'm older now and I've been doing this so long, like I I'm not fearful to ask an adult like, what's stopping you? What's the fear about? What's your own anxiety around this? And I'm sure Michelle Borba in your interview with, with parent, you know, about parenting is you've got like this whole parenting generation that is parenting with sort of a thin veil of terror on their hearts. Like their, their idea is my kid can't go down to the park because he might be abducted. But I will give him an iPhone 14XR for his birthday and like have at it. Like the things we say and do are like super backwards.
0: Super backwards. And that Whoa. was a huge yeah. part of… Um, Childhood 2.0, I don't, I'm I'm not saying that right, but that documentary was um, all about the fears that we had growing up or our parents had growing up were more the external world. Like you step on that nail, you're going to get tetanus or don't take candy from that stranger. um, Because, you know, they were seeing kidnappings, whether they were seeing them all the time or not is a different story, but it's what they knew as the dangers and it's carried on. We haven't quite flipped the script to understand that, yes, there are dangers in the outside world, especially given where you live, right? We're on the border. We have a, we have a border issue here in Arizona with kidnappings and trafficking. We know that. But as you just pointed out, giving them a cell phone is leading to a more prevalence of dangers that they will see, face, buy into, be a part of than anything else we're doing right now. And it's like, it's almost waiting for that realization to catch up. It
2: is. And I think too, like one of the things that I talk about in my talk is like between 99 and 2001, two really significant events happened that created this fear, um, the Columbine school shooting and then 9-11. So like in between those two, three years, like everyone freaked out, like schools are unsafe and I'm going to hunker down. No one's going to hurt my baby. I'm going to run to the principal. If anybody touches him or says anything to him, that's mean. And then you had 9-11 where our whole sense of security as a nation was on the line and hasn't stopped, right? And so there's like this generalized fear layer that is literally on parenting hearts, and parents are sort of displacing that anxiety onto kids. And when you look at all of the stats, Scottsdale, Chandler, Gilbert, wherever you are, um, no one's ever been abducted by a stranger. No one, like zero, zero, zero percent right? Your kid is more apt to find somebody online that's a tricky stranger than down at the park. And so we're like, you can't go down there because you might be abducted, here is, you know, Fortnite, where in the chat box you could meet anyone. So those are the things that I try to point out to lower the blood pressure in the room around the outside world is actually really safe. Yeah, Violent crime is super down. Schools are really safe. the The chance of a school shooting happening is less than 1%. One thing I would like to say, too, about phones, so... Like 33% of third graders have a phone. No. When I do, I'm going to do a student assembly tomorrow in Dallas. And I've been asking this specific question. How many of you sleep with your phone next to your head, under your head, or in your pillowcase? And so far this year, about 65% of the kids have said yes, whether they're in third grade or 12th grade or whatever. Um, the, the question of when to get a phone You have to get super clear about what is the phone for. So I had these fourth and fifth grade girls come up to me because one of my strategies is, please get the phones out of your bedroom. You have to get really good sleep. And you're up all night scrolling and doing crazy stuff and meeting weird people, like get them out of your bedroom. And I had these three little beautiful girls come up to me and ask me, well, what would I do if a stranger broke into my room? What would I do if a fire broke out in my room. And they have this huge sense that the phone is going to save them. The phone, like, so if I call 911, if I don't have my phone, I can't call 911. And so we have to do a better job around the, the area of safety, both school safety and home safety, that you need to do the three things that all survivalists do, run, hide, or fight. You know, we saw in the Uvalde shooting, 10-year-old girls on the phone with 911 in a classroom that had been shot up, not sure what to do, thinking the phone was going to save them, instead of dropping the phone, jumping out the window and running, right? Oh, so this whole sense of security and safety, this is an adult issue that is being displaced on our children.
0: Yeah. Got in PYE so protect young eyes. You mentioned them earlier. One of their top performing posts is um, an article written by The Atlantic a few months ago about getting phones out of schools because of how distracting they are, right? Teachers are supposed to teach, so I I liken this to what you were saying around dealing with problems outside of school. You're fighting crime when. That's not in your job description. You had other things to do, but this is what you were tasked with doing based on priorities. So teachers right now are having to do the same thing in terms of directing attention and constantly reminding and putting away and basically policing. They're also fighting crime in their own way in terms of, the phone usage. And the the comments on this post are very split. Like, We agree, but until gun reform is at this place, then I want my child to have a phone. And I understand it in terms of a mom wanting to make sure their child is okay, but you're right. The phone isn't going to save you in a situation like that, especially if we're talking about what those girls brought up an intruder comes in, God forbid an intruder comes into anybody's home, let alone your daughter's bedroom, but you dial 911 if this person is coming in, the response time is anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes. Uh What are you going to do with that phone in those 10 to 20 minutes that's going to save you from the intruder that's coming in? So wow. it is it's such a misplaced sense of fear. And what you alluded to was um, helicopter parenting. Mm-hmm. That's where that came from. So I, what I heard from what you said was between Columbine and nine eleven was this sense of I'm going to go to the principal if anything bad happens to my baby. And we've gotten to this point 22 years later where helicopter and snowplow parenting is at an all-time high, and it's doing our kids such an incredible disservice with their coping skills, with their ability to do things for themselves, with their sense of agency, all of it. And it's, its again, pointing back to the data, not doing them any service.
1: Well, and I just yeah. have a quick, I wanted to share a quick story because um, I love that you said Phones are not going to save them. It's teaching them how to run, how to hide and fight. And I was on TikTok, this was a few months ago, and there was an intruder, a school shooting happening in Virginia. This was in a, at a college. And this girl who came on after, you know, she was ready to really share her side of the story, she was one of the girls who was trapped in the library where this intruder was. With another handful of, of students. And her dad happened to be at 9 11 and survived. So her whole life, she was taught if this were to happen, you need to do these things. And guess what? She was the one who was so calm. She was the leader amongst mm-hmm. the pack to help these students in safety. And I honestly, in that moment, I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> help my kids, you know, cuz I would probably be like call 911. So it was a good reminder for me though around that our phones aren't going to save us and what is your plan A, your plan B and your plan C. That's the way we got to teach kids how to think. Yeah, for sure. And on that bullying front,
2: you know, the Columbine thing also plays into this because um right after Columbine as an administrator I was told Like, okay, there's a bully and there's a victim. And the framework is there's a really mean kid and, oh, this poor kid. And when we did that, we've seen, again, back to the data, the mental health of our students has completely declined. We have an escalation across the board in anxiety, depression, self-harm, and suicide. And a lot of that points back to Ned Johnson's book, The Self-Driven Child, about Kids that feel like they have control over their own lives thrive. And brains that feel like they don't do not. And so when we have conflict at school between two 8-year-olds or two 12-year-olds or two 17-year-olds and the adult in the room is doing most of the talking, then again, we're not doing any service to our children to raise their social competence for them to turn to another kid and say, what you said in the locker room was not okay with me. Like, what's going on? And that other kid to say, well, last week you said blah, blah, blah. Mm. And to have like a normal combo where both children are on a level playing field. And of course, the adult is there to guide and navigate the conversation if needed. But this is their conflict. And I, you know, I looked at the bullying flowchart from our school district the other day and I literally openly laughed out loud and I said, <laughs> nowhere in this are the children. So the kid's supposed to report, and then the assistant principal does an investigation, calls the parents, the parents get the findings, and then it's like this. And like, where are the kids in their own issue? Nowhere. And that's why they have no vocabulary around how to do this, and they're going to college and coming home.
0: Oh, they are. It's at a 40-year, no, it's a 75-year high of kids failing to launch because they don't feel like they belong. They have no coping skills, which means they're not having any fun. And that is a problem because they're moving right back in with mom and dad, and that's a strain on everyone. And y'all, if you have a chance, we'll ask Katie where her speaking schedule is and where, if she's coming to a school near you, because it's it, you have to go you, you have, have to. to listen because it it was part of your presentation around bullying that really opened my eyes to the fact that people are using the term incredibly mm-hmm. wrong not everything is bullying most of the time it's a scenario where your kids can practice healthy conflict resolution and we're labeling a kid who is probably not actually a bully a bully and we're giving the quote unquote lesser kid the kid who can't stand up for himself this other label where God, we're damaging their self-image and their self-esteem for how how long now? How long are they going to go around playing the victim when really all it started with was an opportunity for them to flex their conflict resolution skills? So your, your data, your presentation around that point of it was so eye-opening was for both cool. Jill and I because mm-hmm. it's like, man, we hear the word a lot. It's, it's a word that is very triggersome for a lot of people. And they're like, oh, my kid's getting bullied, bullied mm-hmm. bully, 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 bully. And it's like, We now have language around questioning that without feeling like we're the assholes, right? Around like, is your kid getting bullied? And then be like, excuse me, absolutely they are because this, this, and this. And they give us a litany of reasons. It's like, well, hold on a minute. How do we peel that onion? How do we peel that layer back and say, did they just have a conflict So they now need to practice what it's like to resolve that with themselves. So you laughing out loud at your flow chart is so poignant because (laughs) you're right. Like, where are the kids in this? And we're not raising kids. We're raising adults. And when they don't have conflict resolution skills, they're moving back in with mom and dad. Is that you on the other end of this podcast? Because do you want that? Because I bet you don't. I bet you would obviously relish in it and allow it to happen. But that is such a strain on everyone at that point. So ugh. yeah. Well, and I just wanted to
1: highlight the the my biggest takeaway. Well I learned a lot in that presentation, especially with the work that Mary and I do. But I love there there was two, there was two um components around conflict resolution. It was keeping someone's dignity mm. intact and being respectful at the same time. And when you really Um, shared more about that, which I would love for you to share um, with our audience. Because then I got to take away that information. And I use that now when my sons are in conflict with one another or when I'm in conflict with them. And having that vocabulary and that language is so it just it's it's so helpful as a parent, but also in checking myself, like did I completely like disregard his Your dignity, dignity? Yeah. or was I being respectful? So can you share a little bit more about that? Because that was such a take away from me. Yeah, sure. And that is like the
2: work of Rosalind Wiseman, and I've been following her for like twelve years. She wrote uh Queen Bees and Wannabes and Masterminds mm. and Wingmen. Script to the Mean Girls movie, but she really outlines the two components. Dignity is inherent worth, and respect is a mutual admiration for another person. So when kids go to school, kids are teasing them for what they look like, what they act like, their shoes, their hair, their skin color, their sexual orientation, like it's all on the table. Um, So they're constantly having their dignity challenged, and I'm not sure our kids know that they have it. I'm not sure our kids know I am inherently worthy. And no one, not my parents, not a teacher, not a coach, not a kid, not my brother, has the right to take that away from me. And really when you boil bullying down, it's one kid trying to take the dignity away of another kid. Now kids can be mean, annoying, and rude, and not rise to the level of quote, bullying. But when you really look at bullying, it's malicious, it's harassment, it's intimidating, and it's taking away someone's dignity. And so we do this super weird thing again as adults where we're like, okay, this kid's super mean, and this kid's not so mean, and so we're gonna make them say sorry. Um, If I just took somebody's dignity away, then that child or teenager may not be ready to apologize or to forgive because they are waiting for us as adults to restore their dignity. And so those bullying flowcharts, really the premise of them is to restore student dignity, which means both students need to be present and both students need to have the opportunity to say, well, when you said this, this is what I was thinking. Well, last week you said this. And in that conversation is the goal for both of those kids to be fighting like, you know what, for their dignity. And the more they can fight, at home, bicker at home, argue, get the one-liners, roast each other, get quick comebacks, the sooner they can transfer those skills to the school where they're going to be in those situations. And then you look at it from a risk-taking standpoint. Someone's going to ask your kid to bathe. Someone's going to ask your kid to smoke pot, take a pill, have sex, do this, do that. Like the sooner they get these self you know, social competence skills to be able to stand up and say, this is not okay with me, the sooner those risk-taking behaviors then become mitigated. And so it works both for dignity and creating social competence for your child and risk-taking behaviors as well.
0: I mean, see, I said you need you need to find where she's speaking and you need to be a part <laughs> so of this good. live because it's great on the podcast, but watching the slides mm-hmm. and the data and just being in conversation with other parents and administrators around was was so helpful in terms of. I mean, we were giddy to go. Jill was like Katie McPherson speaking at the school six o'clock. We I think we had a, a Christmas party to go to. We, we were dressed ridiculously. We were and dressed we, up as the Griswolds. We were dressed up as the Griswolds, <laughs> but it was it was um, a priority of ours to go because we have heard your name in and around this subject in particular so many times. So we'll make sure that all of our listeners have access to your website, your schedule, whatever um you you want them to know where you are um in our in our show notes but sincerely thank you for not only the work you do, the work you've done. I mean, you've really dedicated your life to this, not only in your professional life but your personal life as well, given the fact that you're raising all of all girls. Um it it leads to a better world. It leads to a a, a community that's together in this fight not opposing one another based on whether kids should have phones or not that should be something we're all on the same page about so you're fighting the good fight and we we couldn't appreciate you taking the time to share your knowledge with us um today thank you so much it was so fun thanks yeah Yeah. so listeners we're kicking you off katie stay around for a minute um and we'll see you on the next episode y'all bye everyone Thanks
1: so much for tuning in to What's the Lesson? If you're
0: feeling the same, I can do anything attitude that we are, here's how you can keep the momentum going. Spread the good vibes. Share this episode with your friends, family, or give us a shout out on your social media. Fancy a trip to iTunes town? We're all ears for your ratings and reviews. Seriously, we read each one of them. Your thoughts are like gold to us.
1: Lastly, let's be friends. Hang out with us on social media for more awesome content and behind the scenes action.
0: And until we meet again, remember our golden rule, turning those WTF moments into WTL moments is a superpower. Practice is always progress and you've got this.